Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing all right. Uh, We are in the last section of the Gospel of Matthew. We've been in the portion that's describing his betrayal, his trial, and his execution. And then ultimately, all of this leads to his resurrection. Now, if you've been tracking with us for the last few weeks, every week, before we get into Matthew, we've gone back to the book of Genesis. And we've looked at some of the images that Genesis gives us. And there's a reason for this. And that has to do with the, the idea that the first Christians saw the story of Jesus as the climax to a much larger and longer story that is established all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. And so if you're going to understand what's taking place at the end of the story, you got to have some familiarity with the kind of narrative structure that's laid out before us in the book of Genesis. So each week we've gone back, looked at some images, and then jumped back to Matthew. And today I want to do the same. We're going to review a little bit of where we've been in Genesis, then go to to some new territory, and then come back to the gospel of Matthew. So a few weeks ago, some of you might remember, God creates the world, and then at the climax of that creation, God creates the first humans. Genesis 2-7 gives us a sort of zoomed-in view of that. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, if you were here, you might remember some of the kind of Hebrew highlights that we did because there's some interesting things going on that the first human being is named Adam. The Hebrew for Adam is Adam. And uh, the Hebrew word for man or human is Adam. So the first human, Adam, is named Adam. It's like saying the first man is named man. And he is taken from the Adama, which is a related word. So Adam is an Adam who's taken from the Adama, the ground. And all of those words are Related. These first human beings rebel against God. They listen to the lies and deceptions of a mysterious serpent figure. And then God shows up and pronounces three words of judgment a judgment towards the serpent, a judgment towards the man, and a judgment towards the woman. To the serpent, he says, even in the midst of his judgment, he says words with a a glimmer of hope. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's this idea that there's going to be enmity, war, and strife between the serpent and his people, his offspring, and and this seed of a woman, an offspring of the woman. And the hope is that the serpent will strike at the heel, the foot, of this mysterious offspring of the woman figure, and that the offspring of the woman is going to have like a greater blow that's to the head and not just the heel. Now, if you were a reader of this, you would naturally go, oh, there's going to be an offspring of the woman, like a son of the woman, a son or daughter of the woman, and there's going to be some offspring. So I should probably just turn the page and find out who the children of this person, like who, who are they? And then we get introduced to Cain and Abel, and rather than seeing like a serpent destroyer in Cain and Abel, what we see is the firstborn son, Cain, adopts the method and ways of the serpent. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So the sons of Adam end up spilling blood. The Hebrew word for blood is dam, also related. Dam, Adam, Adama. 
And there's this idea of this blood soaking into the ground. To the judgment against the man, God says this, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, a review of the beginning kind of narrative foundation. There's an Adam named Adam, whose sons spill dom, blood, into the ground. God also gives words of judgment to the serpent, to the man, and to the woman. To the man, he gives this wonderful, great, encouraging news that you are but Adam, and you're going to work all the days of your life. It's going to be hard, and then you're going to die and go back to the ground, the Adama from which you came. So that's, that's the plan. Work hard all the days of your life and die and go into the ground. That's sort of like, it's, it's, it's creepy. It's like, man. Okay, so we have all of these images building. Thorns, thistle, curse, blood, first humans, breath of life, all of the, these images. I want to give you one new one. It's an interesting one that's often overlooked. After Adam and Eve are kind of kicked out of the garden, the scriptures record this. Therefore, the Lord God sent them out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, important image here. Adam and Eve, they're exiled from the garden. They're they're sort of kicked out. And guarding the way back in, are these two supernatural, or it doesn't say how many, there's these like supernatural angelic beings called cherubim, and then there's this flaming sword. Now, what is the garden? What is the garden? The garden was the place where God dwelt with human beings. Remember, like Adam and Eve walked with God. The original design of human beings is that they would live and dwell and walk with their God. Now, the garden is paradise, It's paradise. Um, The ancient Near Eastern conception in which the Bible was written in of a garden is like the definition of paradise. Um, Today, modern people, we have an equivalent, like, like begin to picture yourself on a vacation and you're on a sandy beach and there's a perfect, like perfect crystal clear blue water. It's like you're on a tropical island, right? And as you're sitting in the lounge chair, you know, drinking a cool, refreshing drink, looking at the most beautiful, pristine ocean you've ever seen, you'd go, this is paradise. For ancient Near Eastern people, paradise is the image of garden. And that is so strong that when the words of, the the Hebrew words that we get Garden of Eden from are translated into Greek, specifically to something called the Greek Septuagint, which is the um, translation that Jesus and the disciples would have been reading in Greek, it doesn't say Garden of Eden, it says Paradise of Eden, Paradiso of Eden, because the garden is paradise, like by definition. And the reason why it's paradise by definition in the biblical framework is because that's where God lives. Like paradise by definition in the Bible is the place in which God dwells. You follow this? Paradise, the garden, by definition, are the place where God dwells. So to go to paradise is to be with God, and there's the imagery of the garden. 
Now there's a problem because they get kicked out of paradise. The garden is closed. You're not getting back in. And just in case you're going to try to sneak in when it gets dark, I'm putting two supernatural angelic beings with a flaming fiery sword. Eden is closed. Paradise is closed. You're not getting back in. Now here's an interesting uh, idea. Cain and Abel, we're told, make sacrifices, right? Where's the temple at this time? Is there a tabernacle? There's a temple? It's like, is there church buildings? No, no. So where, like conceptually, where is the first place you would think that Cain and Abel would be bringing their sacrifices before the Lord? Have you thought about this? It's a weird question. Well, you would bring your sacrifices to the place that's closest to where you believe the dwelling place of God is. And so picture this. Picture Cain and Abel. They're making sacrifices at the entry point back into the garden where there's the cherubim. The garden is where God lives. And so you're going to make your sacrifices in that direction. Now, this is a massive problem with the, with a massive problem to be solved in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve, and thus by extension all human beings, we were made, we were designed to live with God. We were meant to dwell with God. But because of sin and rebellion, we've been kicked out. And now there's angelic beings, these cherubim, that guard the way back in. So the question we have to answer is, how do we get access to God again? How do we get back to the garden? How do we get back to paradise? How do we get to live and dwell with God again? Well, the answer that the, that the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures give is the temple. God gives directions to build a temple so that God can dwell among his people again, right? God is going to dwell inside of the temple and live among his people. Now, what we miss, however, is that the temple is designed to take you back to Eden. All of the descriptions of the temple and the interior design descriptions are images of a garden-like paradise. The reason why, for the most part, we miss it is because, honestly, it's extremely repetitive, like chapter after chapter, and then they did this, and then they did this, and then they carved this flower, and they carved this palm. And if you're honest, it's one of those sections in scriptures where you do one of these. You know, it's like kind of repetitive, it's boring, you're trying to stick to your Bible reading plan, you've already broken three times, and just give it a little bit. It's okay, I see you. A lot of people not making eye contact, right? <laughs> not making eye contact. I'm taking, taking some notes down. Okay. But let me, let me, let me show you the, like, the design. This is what the, the temple looks like. It's meant to take you back to Eden, to a garden. 1 Kings 6.18, the cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. 1 Kings 6.29-30, Around all the walls of the house, he carved engraved, fig engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house, he overlaid with gold in the inner room and the outer room. Now, we just think, okay, they're laying with gold because gold's nice. Where does gold first appear in the scriptures? Where do you first see gold? Where's gold first located in the Bible? It's in Eden. It's in the paradise. That's where gold is. So this is a place of flowers and palm trees, and there's gold. 1 Kings 6.35. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold, evenly applied on the carved work. 1 Kings 7.18. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around the one lattice work. 
So as you go into the temple in the Old Testament, it is filled with garden paradise imagery. It's palm trees, it's pomegranates, it's flowers, it's budding flowers, it's gold. And then if you were to walk into the garden, you're walking into paradise, and it's paradise because of what? Well, God is supposed to be there. What's inside the temple? Another smaller room called the Holy of Holies, and this is the location where it's said that God would uniquely manifest his presence to live and dwell with his people. Now, if you were to walk into the Holy of Holies, there's like a curtain there, a a veil. And so if you were to go into that, you would now be in the Holy of Holies with the presence of God, but you would never go into that room because only one person was allowed to go into that room one time a year, and even he, the high priest, at that one day of year, technically wasn't really going inside of it to be with the dwelling place, to be in the dwelling place of God, because as he went through the veil, he was supposed to light incense and create a smoke veil so that he wouldn't be beholding the presence of God directly, because if he did, there's a solid chance he's dead. Now, oftentimes, we might think like, you know, God, because God can't be in the presence of a sinner. And this, this, this is not the way the logic of the Bible works. It's, it's not like God is weak and he can't have a sinner be in his presence. It's that you can't be in the presence of that holy God. If you were to take a little spaceship and fly to the sun, the sun isn't going, oh no, there's something coming to get me. No, you just die and melt. You just die and melt, it's over. Now, what's guarding? What's protecting people from going to the sun? What's protecting people from walking into the direct presence of God? The temple, the curtain, and then if you were to go past the curtain, you would see what? Our image. The cherubim. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, shall you make them. On the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim of its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another. Towards the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. You see how this is repetitive? Because you're supposed to be picturing it, so... Do your best to picture it. Verse 21, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So you walk in, and there's two, like, copies of supernatural angelic beings guarding the throne room of God. And they're there. And the idea is this. God creates this covenant with Israel, and if they are faithful to the covenant, he will dwell with his people. And it's an invitation back to the garden. It's an invitation back to paradise. It's an invitation back to Eden. So God is going to dwell with his people in the temple, and the temple looks like a garden. And where is this temple built? In Jerusalem, in Israel, which is also called the promised land. And what is the promised land filled with? It's filled with the imagery of the garden. There's grapes and pomegranates and there's dates. So God is making a way 
for his people to dwell once again with him in faithfulness to the covenant. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, you know um, how does their faithfulness to the covenant go? Like, how does that story go? It's not a good story. It doesn't end well. Nevertheless, these images are established. God's presence, his dwelling, is guarded by supernatural angelic beings, and human beings don't just have access to that. Eden is closed. And this image of God's presence being protected is used all throughout scripture. Here's just one simple example. This is Isaiah 6.4. The prophet Isaiah is given a vision and he's taken up to the throne room of God and we see some familiar images. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So when God speaks, the foundations shake. And then you have, in this case, the Hebrew word here that's used is not the word uh, cherubim, but seraphim. Now, there's all kinds of debate about like what's the, what are the different categories of supernatural kind of angelic beings, and that can get you sidetracked. The main point is this. All throughout Scripture, the throne room of God is seen being protected or guarded by these kind of like throne guardian supernatural angelic beings. You don't just get to go to God, and it's not because he's going to get like destroyed if you go into his presence. Remember, if you're familiar with the story of Isaiah, when he's brought into the throne room, what's his first reaction? Woe is to me, I'm dead. That's a loose translation. Um, He says, woe is to me for I am undone. And that undone in Hebrew has to deal with like, I am being torn apart at the fabric of my being. In other words, I'm a dead man. He knows I can't just go into the presence of the living God. So we have a problem How do we get back to the garden? How do we get back to paradise? How can we dwell with God again? Now, we're going to take a quick turn here because we leave this image of the Lord in glory, the seraphim chanting, holy, 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 and it's this worship and uplifting of the Lord, and we're going to shift from that image of glory to an image of absolute shame and agony where Jesus, our Lord, is on the cross and he's not surrounded by angels saying, holy, holy. He's surrounded by the sinners he came to die for and they're mocking him. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now if you were here last week, we reviewed how All the people, the religious leaders, those passing by, and even the criminals that are being crucified with Jesus are all mocking him and shaming him. And they're using the words that Satan used way back in Matthew chapter four in the wilderness temptation. Now, as Jesus is being mocked, the scriptures record this. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. Okay. Now, I hope you know that 
since we've been going back and looking at the biblical images, you're seeing how when the Bible communicates something or uses an image, it, it, it's used to communicate multiple things on, on multiple layers, right? It's not just one simple explanation of something. So what does the darkness mean? In one sense, it has to do with um, maybe like God showing a divine disapproval of what's taking place at the crucifixion of Jesus. Or it could mean something along the lines of creation itself is rebelling against the injustice that's taking place. But, but there's, there's deeper layers. There's like deeper biblical layers to this. So several months ago now, um, we talked about Jesus entering Jerusalem. It's called the triumphal entry. Remember this, Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the first time, not the first time in his life, but the first time at that point. And it's called the triumphal entry. People are saying, Hosanna, this is the son of David. And we talked about how it's a specific time. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem, it was a specific time. Do you remember what time it was? It was freedom time. And freedom time was what? Passover time. So Jesus enters in in the season of Passover, the time of Passover. And he starts that week off with that fervor of freedom and the stories that that correspond to the Passover. And by the time you get to the crucifixion, you are at Passover time. You're at Passover time. Now, where does Passover come from? It comes from the book of Exodus. In particular, what part of the book of Exodus? Well, it's the ending to the 12 plagues that God brought upon Egypt. And how do those plagues end? God says... I am going to bring death, but by the blood of a lamb put on a doorpost, the firstborn son shall be saved. Now, what comes before the tenth plague? The ninth plague. Do you remember what the ninth plague is? It's darkness. There's darkness over the land for three days. And at the ending of the darkness for three days, then there will be a deliverance. A deliverance by the blood of the lamb put on doorposts to save the firstborn. So what do you have here? You have darkness over the land for three hours. It's Passover time. And at the time of Passover, you will now have something similar but different because now the true son of God, the only begotten one, will give up his life in order that he might deliver his people. It's darkness over the land. The book of Amos records a prophetic look at this. Amos speaks of a coming day of the Lord of judgment. And he says, on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and, dark, and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun at the end of it like a bitter day. I'm going to bring darkness over the land, and there's going to be morning, the morning of that of an only son. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Okay, so what's going on? Um, 
For those of you who are familiar with the story of Elijah, he doesn't die a normal death. He's sort of taken up. And so there were some traditions of the day that said Elijah would return and help the righteous man or the righteous prophet who suffers unjustly. And so they think Jesus is kind of maybe calling upon this tradition like, Elijah, come, come save me. Elijah, where are you? But Jesus isn't calling upon Elijah. He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we got to pause here. Slow down a little bit because um, there are some, there are, there are ways to communicate what's happening when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that um, aren't necessarily, they're not exercising theological precision. We could say it like that. And um, at best, they're just not being theologically precise. At worst, they could unfortunately lead people down a, a road that leads to a false conception of God the Father. Okay, so let me explain what I mean. If you grew up in church, um, when we talk about this verse, oftentimes there's things that are said, and they often come out like in little one-line slogans, um, and they mean well, and they're pointing at least kind of in the right direction of what's happening, but again, it's just imprecise. So if you grew up in church, you might have heard something like this. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is where God the Father turns his back on Jesus, or this is where God abandons Jesus, or God had to abandon Jesus because all the sins of the world were upon Jesus, and God couldn't look at that, or variations of things like that. Um, now, there's some problems with this just right off the bat. One, this idea that God, like, God can't look at, it's too much sin and God couldn't look at that. Okay, God is omniscient. That means he knows all things. And God is omniscient from eternity, so he's known all things eternally. He's known all things that could possibly be known, and he's known them before the foundations of the world. He doesn't acquire new knowledge. He doesn't learn things. He doesn't get surprised when things happen on our earthly timeline. So he knows all things. There's not things that like he can't look at. His omniscience is too weak. Like God is not such a weak individual that he can't look upon sin. Rather, God is so strong that he looks at the worst of sin and decisively acts in order to do away with it. That's a different understanding of God. He is not so weak that he can't bear to look at something. He looks at it and decides and decisively moves. Secondly, um, there's this idea that... Um, you know, this is where, like, God abandons Jesus. And I get why people would, would say that because there, and we'll get to it, um, there is this feeling of forsakenness and abandonment. But you pair that understanding with some other bad theology and you could end up again with a bad understanding of who God is. So oftentimes people have an understanding of the gospel and God that looks something like this. God the Father hates sin and he's really angry with sin, and he's going to pour out his wrath upon sin. And then Jesus goes, oh no, don't pour out your wrath on all that sin. I'll, I'll let all that anger fall upon me, and I'll let the wrath pour upon me. Okay, there's good news and bad news with this. I'll give you the bad news. It's not just God the Father who's angry at sin. There is one God 
Three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The one true triune God was mad at sin. The Father was angry at sin. The Son was angry at sin. The Spirit was angry at sin. And the one triune God saw fit before the foundations of the world in perfect wisdom that the Son would be the one who would go and pay for the price of sin. But that is not the same thing as the Father is the angry one, the Son takes the beating, and then they both send you their spirit because they're both in heaven. The one triune God saw fit that the Son would be the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. All, all, three, all three are angry with sin. And the one true triune God devised a plan in perfect wisdom to deal with it. So, so what, what is kind of going on here? What, what's the issue? Why does Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First thing you need to know is that Jesus is quoting scripture. When Jesus is suffering in agony on the cross, he quotes the Bible. And my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is a quote from uh, Psalm 22.1. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now the Psalms are ancient Israel's hymn book. So you have to understand that People in Jesus' day knew the Psalms by heart. These are the songs they sing again and again and again. So it's similar to something like this. If I were to say, amazing grace, how sweet the, that saved the, look, I don't have to give you hints. Just know it, right? The Psalms function like that for ancient Israel. So when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus certainly the religious elite of the day and certainly the faithful Jewish bystanders know the rest of the lyrics. They know how the song goes. They know the the song, they know the lyrics. It's us that often don't know the lyrics. So what's taking place is Jesus is feeling the full weight of abandonment and forsakenness, the full weight of human suffering and agony. And in that, he identifies himself with the psalmist who wrote Psalm 22 a thousand years prior because the psalmist in Psalm 22 is feeling the abandonment and forsakenness and the full weight of human suffering, and he writes this song as a cry to God. Now, this is where it gets real creepy, because the psalmist wrote this a thousand years before the time of Jesus, and now Jesus is quoting this song upon the cross. Let me show you some of the other lyrics in this song. Verse seven through eight. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Does this sound familiar? My strength is dried up like, dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Does this sound familiar? This is what Jesus is quoting. Written a thousand years before the crucifixion, Jesus begins Psalm 22, and everyone then knows the rest of the lyrics. Verse 22, 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. So you see, even in the agony and the suffering of the one who is afflicted in Psalm 22, there is still this ongoing hope. 
There's ongoing faithfulness. It is simultaneously a cry of desperation and despair and ongoing faithfulness. My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Nevertheless, you, Lord, do not be far from me. You're my help. Please come quickly to my aid. Now, at this point, the Psalm 22 turns, and it turns from abandonment and forsakenness and suffering and agony and despair, and then it turns and begins speaking of God's faithfulness to the one who is afflicted. 22 through 23. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And all the offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. It says that the one who is suffering will praise the Lord in the midst of the congregation. Now, oftentimes we just think, um, you know, praise and worship is, is songs, and, and, and a big part of praise and worship is singing to the Lord. But worship is, is obedience and faithfulness. And has there ever been a more faithful moment in human history than when Christ is hanging on the cross drinking of the cup every last drop. He can call down an army, of army, an army of angels at any moment and he remains faithful to hang on that cross. Has there ever been a moment of more faithfulness, obedience, and worship? Christ on the cross is proclaiming the name of the true Lord of heaven and earth. For he has not despised or abhorred me, the, afflicted, the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him but he has heard him when he cried to him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. So look at some of the themes that appear in the rest of Psalm 22. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard him when he cried to him. All the families of the earth shall worship before you. And then lastly, he has done it. The Lord will be victorious. So when Christ cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the cry of despair and desperation. The full weight of human suffering and abandonment is upon him. Nevertheless, he quotes a psalm that ends not with the sufferer dying in shame, but with ultimately victory coming. And Christ cries that out. He quotes the Bible as he's on the cross. Immediately after this, it says this, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This uh, phrase, uh, yielded up his spirit, in Greek, it's, uh, the, the root word is ephemi, and it comes, ephekin uh, tapanuma is the exact phrase. Um, and it's interesting because it's, it's like a giving up of your spirit or a relenting, releasing. And I, the reason why I think Matthew records it this way is this theme that Matthew has been teaching us the whole way. Christ doesn't have his life taken from him. He's not, he, Christ wasn't on trial. Remember, Christ wasn't on trial before Pilate. He didn't have to prove his innocence. He didn't have to prove he was, he was okay and a good guy. Christ said, I can call down a, a hundred, a, an army of angels right now. Make no mistake about it. Christ was going to the cross of his own will and no one was going to take his life from him. He was going to give it up. And so in this moment, in his agony, when it's finally finished, he's done all the work, he gives up his spirit. 
Now, the, the, the word spirit is pneuma in Greek, and it's a flexible word, and um, it can mean something like spirit. Sometimes it means breath. Sometimes it means wind. This is actually quite common for several ancient languages because the Hebrew word, the Hebrew equivalent word, ruach, does the same thing. Ruach can mean spirit, can mean wind or breath. So both in Greek and Hebrew, these, these words have flexible meanings, breath, wind, spirit. Now what's fascinating here is there's a beautiful image, a beautiful image. When God created the first Adam, he took a man from the ground, the Adamah, and he made that Adam by doing what? He breathes into him. He gives him the breath, and the man becomes a living being. And now the second Adam, the faithful Messiah, will die and give up his breath, not to create man for the first time, but in order that man might be born again, that man might be made new, that he might be a new creation, be made new in the spirit and breathe anew. And at this moment, it says, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. There's these signs, like cosmic signs that are taking place. There's darkness over the land, the the, the curtain in the temple is tearing, the ground is shaking, the rocks are splitting. And then there's this weird passage about how um, the tombs open and these saints are brought back to life. Now here's the thing, with that, that last part's weird, it's bizarre. It's not recorded in any of the other gospels, it's just recorded in Matthew and there's no other information about it. It just says, yeah, with the death and resurrection of Jesus, some other people came back to life. Would you like to know more? It's too bad. So we, we don't know the details, but apparently there's something similar. If you're familiar with the Lazarus story in the Gospel of John, there was several other Lazarus-like events. Not that people were resurrected like in the resurrected body, but just as Lazarus came back to life and then would ultimately die again, there was this type of Lazarus-type event taking place with multiple people. And that's all you get. You get no other information. And I think there's a reason for that because the recording of this is not the point. the point. The point is this. What you are seeing at the death of the Son of God is the whole of creation responding. Do you remember in Isaiah 6, God is seated on the throne and when his voice speaks, what happens? The foundations, the thresholds shake. And now what happens? Jesus of Nazareth cries out. He gives up his spirit. He dies in faithfulness. And now there's cosmic reverberations all throughout the created order. You have the heavens, the darkness above. You have the ground below shaking. That above, that below. Then you have the curtain in the temple. And what is the, the, the curtain and veil in the temple doing? It's, it's separating the dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of man. That divides heaven and earth conceptually. The temple is the place where heaven and earth meet. So you have a disruption and reverberation taking place in the heavens above, the grounds below, at the point where heaven and earth meet, and then you have both the living and the dead feeling these reverberations. There's living human beings that are being affected by it, and then even it says some of those who are dead. So it's giving you a picture, a cataclysmic picture, that when the Son of God dies, the entire cosmos is being affected. 
And it goes on. Upon seeing this, there's a centurion, a Roman there. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Now think about this. We've already said that like all of the created order is being affected by this and now Matthew is adding to it. It's the heavens above, the earth below, the place where heaven and earth meet, the living, the dead, and now you have Jew and Gentile. The the death of the Son of God is touching every sphere of the created order and the social order of human beings. And then it further demonstrates it by what he records next. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, there's a whole, just with the centurion saying you're the son of God, there's like a whole sermon series there. And there's like a whole sermon series based upon the faithful women that are there. So there's tons of information, but for the image and for our purposes right now, Matthew has now added another layer and now it's every, every sphere of human existence is being touched by the Son of God. At his death, the heavens above, the ground below, the point of heaven and earth, their meeting, the curtain, the veil in the temple, the living and the dead, Jew, Gentile, male, female, it's all feeling the weight and effects of the death of the Son of God. Nothing in the created order is left untouched. Now, we're gonna take all of this imagery with us and now backtrack, like look at some big picture stuff. Okay, so first you have this beautiful image that takes us back to Genesis. God originally gives breath to the first Adam, and now the second Adam, Jesus, gives up his breath, gives up his spirit to give new life to people dead in sin. This is a beautiful image back to the garden, but there's something else taking place. We have a massive problem, remember? The way back to the garden is closed. Paradise, closed, off limits. You can't get back in. Now, when all of the created order is affected by the death of the Son of God, there's a specific mention of a specific curtain or veil, right? And that curtain, that veil could be just the front entrance into the temple or it could be the veil that guards the Holy of Holies, which we talked about before. Either way, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter that the, the, the meaning would still be the same, but I think for a number of reasons, we are talking about the veil or the curtain that's before the Holy of Holies. So you have the big temple structure, and then at the, the back end of it, you have the place where God is said to dwell. This is the place where God is said to dwell. Now, if, remember, if you walk into the temple, what do you see? All the images of the garden and then you walk into the specific dwelling place of God, what do you see? You see the, the throne room of God with the guardian throne, supernatural angelic beings guarding the presence of God. They say, close, you can't come in here and live, you will die. So what is Matthew trying to tell you as a reader when he says at the death of the Son of God, when he gives up his spirit, when he is faithful to his Father, the temple in the Holy of Holy is torn in half from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. This is Matthew telling you Eden is back open. There's a way back to the garden. There is a way back to paradise. Because why is it paradise? What makes paradise paradise? It's the place where God lives there is, a, there is a way to walk with God again. There is a way to know God again. There is a path back to the garden and it's in and through the person of the son, Jesus. 
There's a way back home. There's a way back home. There's a way back to the garden, to paradise. And it's through Jesus. Luke, who writes a biography of Jesus, similar to the Gospel of Matthew, says this in a more explicit way. Because remember, in Greek, the Garden of Eden is the paradise of Eden, paradisos. Listen to what Luke records about that conversation between the criminals who were mocking Jesus at the cross. Luke gives us a little more information. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The temple's curtain is torn. Eden is open again. There's a path to the garden and to paradise and to live and to dwell with God and it's in and through the person and work of the son. He tells the thief, you're gonna be with me in paradise, the dwelling place of God. Okay, so Eden is open, paradise is open. There's a way back to God. Now, uh, there's a pastor by the name of Alistair Begg who gives an illustration at this point about this thief on the cross and what is occurring when Jesus tells him, you're gonna be with me in paradise today. That's an, it's an amazing illustration. The guy has a Scottish accent, so when he tells the illustration, it's gonna be way better than I, than I do it. Like, everything just hits better. But um, nevertheless, it's, it's a powerful illustration of what's taking place. Okay, so Alistair Begg asks the hypothetical question to everyone. Um, if you were to die tonight and you were to go to heaven, what would you say? And it's a little comical because he's wanting you to picture like you're going to heaven and there's gates there and there's like an angel at the entrance like saying like, you know, how did you get here? You know? So you die and you go to heaven and you're at the, the, the front gate to heaven. You know, you, you sort of think you're going in but nothing's guaranteed. Um, and the angel asks you like, what did you do to deserve to get here? And Alistair Beck says, if you begin with the first person, you've already gone the wrong direction. If you begin in the first person by saying, I deserve to be here because I, because I did this, because I was obedient in this, because I am this person, because I've been faithful my whole life. If you begin it in the first person, you've already got the answer wrong. Beck goes on to say, the only correct and proper answer begins in the third person. Why do I deserve to be here? Because what he did, because of him. I'm here because of what Christ did. Now then he takes that and now now map this upon the thief on the cross. Okay, it's a really interesting story because he's reviling Christ. There's this like last minute repentance and he suffers and dies in agony. But at some point before he passes, Jesus tells him, you will be with me in paradise. So picture the criminal on the cross, his suffering ends and he wakes up and he's in the place you were. It's like the gates right there to heaven. And there's an angel there and the angel says, how did you get here? And you know, uh, Alistair Begg's being playful and comical with it, so it, but it works. Like, well, how did, how did you get here? And the thief on the cross goes, I, I, I don't know. 
I don't know how I got here. What do you mean you don't know how you got here? What do you mean? And then the angel goes, look, I just checked the records like two hours ago. Your name wasn't in this. Like your name, I checked two hours ago. Your name, like I don't see how that much could have changed. It was like you were like on the way, like not good list uh, just two hours ago. So what are you doing here? How did you get here? I don't know. I don't know how I got here. Well, this is a massive problem, says the angel. He goes, you know what? Let me, let me go, let me talk to this, my supervisor angel. So he goes, gets the supervisor angel, brings the supervisor angel back, supervisor angel says, says okay, sir, we're trying to understand. Um, tell me exactly how you got here. I don't know. I don't have any time to say it. I don't know how I got here. I know, we don't know either. It's a real problem. We've checked the records. You weren't here two hours ago. Like, how did, how did you get here? I don't know. Okay, sir, one last time. On what basis do you deserve to be here? How did you get here? And the thief on the cross says, I don't know how I got here. All I know is that the man on the middle cross said I could come. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not because of what I've done, not because the works of my hands, not because of any amount of faithfulness that I've acquired over my life. The basis and grounds for why I get to go to heaven, why you get to go to heaven, is in the third person because he, the man on the middle cross, says you can come because his work, his death, his resurrection has opened a path for you to get back to paradise. His work gives you a path back to Eden. You can walk again with your God in the garden of paradise, not because of the works of your hand, but the works of his. The way to Eden is open. The way to paradise is open. And by the blood of the lamb, the Passover of Passover lambs shed on the cursed hill of Golgotha, the place of the skull, the second Adam, the faithful one, dies in perfect obedience to his father in order that the triune God's plan since the foundations of the world might reach fulfillment. And because of that, you can go to heaven in boldness and say, what do you deserve to be here? I don't deserve to be here. Trick, joke's on you. <laughs> because of him. Now it gets better because there is a, a day when we, were, we will experience the dwelling place of God in a way that's much more profound than we currently experience it. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you do experience the presence of God. Because with the tearing of that temple's curtain, the first Christians went on to say that when you put your faith in Christ, he then puts his spirit in you. The presence of the living God is in you which means you have a taste and a glimpse of paradise right now in this moment because paradise by definition is the place where God lives. And if God lives inside of you, you are a living, walking, breathing, mini microcosm of Eden. Where God is, that's the garden. Where God is, that's paradise. You are a living, walking, breathing, mini garden. And what flows out of the garden? Living water flows out of the garden. What does Jesus say of his followers? Out of you will flow rivers of living waters. And so everywhere a Christian goes, a piece of Eden goes. And out of them flow living water. And that living water flows where? To a world still filled with thorns and thistles. 
And that world that is filled with thorns and thistles is in desperate need of living water. And it's God's people who are called in the present, in the now, to be a little mini glimpse of paradise in Eden. And you do that in small things and in large things. When you be faithful to God, when you, when you see someone who's, who's, let's say they're struggling financially and you come alongside of them and out of the abundance that God has given you, you come alongside and help them. When you cry with those who are crying, when you give encouragement to those who are mourning, when you support those who are broken, when you share the love of Christ, you are bringing a piece of Eden paradise and the living waters flow out to a world filled with thorns and thistles. And again, this world filled with thorns and thistles is in desperate need of living water. And this is the beauty of the gospel and the mission. The gospel is what? What, what did I do? On what grounds do I get to go? On what grounds do I get to know God? Remember, one dude a year, the high priest, once a year, would go in there and even then he puts up a veil so he doesn't die. Why does wretched old Isaac get to go into the presence of the living God because the hand and mercy and the grace of God himself in the person of the Son of God. That's my grounds, that's my basis, that's my foundation. And out of that, I am blessed with his spirit. And from that flows living waters. And we see in partial, one day we'll see in totality. At the end, in heaven, there is the tree of life with the streams of living water. And what we just get a little glimpse of, the mini microcosm of Eden will be known in its fullness. But in now, in the present, we are called to presently live in faithfulness to the one who died for us, not to earn anything, but out of the abundance that he's given. So for those of you with heavy hearts, you know, sin, shame, past regrets, past hurts, past pains, all the messed up stuff that could possibly happen to you. What did the thief on the cross come with? Nothing. He came with nothing. It's like the angel's like, well, tell us how many Bible studies you attended and tell us, um, give us your view of the end times, your eschatology, so we can understand that, you know, you've been faith. He, he comes with nothing. He comes with one thing, the word of the son of God. That man on the middle cross said, I can come. So whatever you're feeling, whatever weight you have, the man on the middle cross, our king, our Lord, the second Adam, the Messiah says, you can come by faith. Welcome back to Eden. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he takes bread, says, this is my body, it's given for you. Remember this theme. This is my body, it's given for you. No one takes his life from him. He gives up his spirit. Christ gives up his spirit to breathe new life into sinful men. And so, Lord, we remember your body broken on our behalf. And likewise, Jesus takes the cup, the blood of the new covenant, it's shed on our behalf. And just as the ground was cursed and Cain shed the blood of his brother Abel, Jesus is the faithful one who makes the acceptable sacrifice to his father. And as his blood goes into the ground and doesn't cry out 
vengeance or justice, it cries out, Father, forgive, for they know not what they do. And his blood reverses the curse and it brings healing to the entire world and it offers grace and forgiveness for all who would put their faith in him. So Lord, we put our faith in you today. We do it in the past, we do it now in the present and we ask that we would faithfully in the future continue to be faithful to you for you've been faithful to us. And Father, now we close with worship. May God's people gather together, honor your son, for he is more than worthy. Thank you for the fact that your son is the suffering servant, but also the conquering king. We worship you today, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.